Thank you so much, worship team. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we come expectantly. We come expectantly, Lord, to your word, because from it comes the promise of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the promises of e eternal God who loves his own eternally. We pray, Lord, that you will speak again to the needs of our heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every year during the Christmas season, our thoughts begin to turn about how to bring joy to loved ones, to family, to friends that are close to us. Uh, some of us are already thinking, how are we going to bring joy to our spouse? How are we going to bring joy to our parents? How are we going to bring joy to our siblings? How are we going to bring joy to our coworkers and acquaintances and people like that? Our minds are just filled with these kinds of thoughts. And this is especially true for the world that really doesn't know about Christ. To them, Christmas is just a couple of days off. It's a, it's a time to, an excuse, if you will, to eat all the things that are unhealthy for you, <laughs> so to speak. And so we tackle that with great enthusiasm, don't we? And so this is how the world thinks. And uh, naturally, uh, we think about material tokens or gifts uh, that will express our love and appreciation for these special ones. But this Christmas, as I thought about uh, Christmas, you know, 36 times, 36 Christmases, I've given Christmas messages. And so I've talked about the kings, I've talked about the shepherds, I've talked about the sheep. Man, I've even talked about, you know, <laughs> people who, who we think were there but weren't there, you know, because all these different angles. And so I asked the Lord, Lord, please help me. How can I, what do you want the people of GBC to know about Christmas? And so, as the Holy Spirit began to work, he led me to the parables of Luke chapter 15. And basically, the question is this, what would bring joy to God? What would bring joy to God? You see, we're so wrapped up in bringing joy to everybody else around us, but have we ever stopped for just a moment to ask ourselves, what would bring joy to God? I mean, after all, what can you give a God who has everything? <laughs> you know, there's nothing in this world that we can give him that would particularly, you know, that he hasn't had before, or hasn't seen before, hasn't experienced before, you see? So what would bring joy to the heart of God? Well, our answer is found in Luke chapter 15. And so I ask you to join me there. Now, not everybody has the long, rich history of teaching that GBC family has, and and so I have to account for that. And so that's why the beginning part of the outline says, para what? Para what? The secretaries at the office thought I was misspelling something. Para what? Para means parables. Parable. What is a parable? Okay? And a parable is basically a story where people see themselves and see God. That's a simple version. Okay? And so parables are important. Uh, Dr. Gary Inrig gives us helpful handles to understand the parables in the Bible. He says parables, some people have likened them to mirrors where we can see ourselves. So we hear a parable, we say, hey, that's me, that's me. Some people have likened a parable to a window, a window into the heart and mind of God. And so people would say, oh, 
so that's what God is like. Oh, that's what God is thinking about. Well, parables are also were used by Jesus as he taught. Sometimes he used them to hide truth from groups that already made up their minds to reject Christ. And so we have ample examples of that. To them, the parables were a big riddle. To them, it was silliness. What, what is he saying? I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But they had already made up their minds that they were rejecting and resisting Christ anyway. And then sometimes he used the parables to reach out and to illumine the hearers, the hearts and minds of hearers who were open to him and this message of forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Question is asked, who are we? Are we the ones who have already rejected Christ? No matter what is said, no matter how it's presented, or are we ones who have an open heart and open mind in which God can speak to us through these parables? Parables can also be misunderstood if we're not careful. In order to interpret them properly, we have to keep in mind the context. Usually parables were used by Jesus to address a situation or answer a specific question. For example, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God. And he was talking about who would make up the kingdom of God. And so there was this group called the Pharisees and the scribes who were mortal enemies of Christ. And they didn't particularly agree with him at all. And so what happens was Jesus was answering the questions for the masses. And he was saying, who would be in the kingdom of God? And he used these parables. And he was teaching that the composition of the kingdom of God would be to those who were considered unfit or outcasts. Now, that would really blow away the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus was teaching about who would be in the kingdom of God to the religious leaders, and they weren't happy, as seen in verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15. It says there, it says, now all, the tax, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him, meaning Christ, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. <laughs> you can just imagine the tone of voice they had. You know, they didn't think too much of these people. And what do they have to do with the kingdom of God? They're not like us. They're not like the high and mighty. And the, instead, they are the low and weak. They are not the sinless like we are, but they are the sinful. These are the ones that don't deserve to be in the kingdom of God. They have to be more like us. That was the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes. And so Jesus taught this parable to answer that question, to answer that question. So we have to do this. We have to keep in mind the context. We also have to keep in mind the, uh, how we interpret the characters and symbols in a parable. The characters in the parables represent some of our attitudes and actions. The characters in the parables represent God's attitudes and actions. So there's always these two distinct groups that are in there when you read a parable. All right? And so a parable then is a story that helps us to see ourselves and to see the heart and mind of God. And so, no matter how familiar these parables may be to you, maybe you've heard them a zillion times, I hope today that you will lock on your brain and you will say to yourself, who am I? Which one of these people am I in this parable? Who is God in this parable? All right? And so, that's where we're headed. So, let's go. Let's go at it. And Jesus gives us three parables. So, very quickly. The first one 
teaches is the parable of the lost sheep. And this one is, shows the preciousness of the lost. The preciousness of the lost or the lost item. Basically, there are two. There's the lost sheep and then there's the shepherd. Now, thank God it's not the lost shepherd. All right, we'd be in big trouble if it was the lost shepherd. <laughs> but it isn't. It's the lost sheep. And so if you read 3 and 4, you say, So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost? Sheep were notorious for wandering off. All right? They didn't understand the good things that they had with the flock, and so sometimes they decided they would wander off and do their own thing. And so they would get lost. And when they do, they are far away from the protection and provisions of the shepherd. Now that brings us to the shepherd in verses 5 and 6, because what did he do? Well, he left the 90 and 9, he goes after the lost sheep, and he does so until he finds it. Verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost, he says. And so he goes on in verse uh, 7, and he says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So what was it that Jesus was trying to say here? I want you to notice that to the shepherd, the sheep was deeply loved. He went out after that sheep until he found it. Until he found it. And then when he found it, he put it on his shoulders. He wasn't going to let that sheep wander away. <laughs> He's going to stay very close to him. And then he was going to ask his friends to come and celebrate with him as to what he found. And so the point of the passage, though, is actually found in verse 7 because he says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And so what happens is the lost sheep, those who are away from God, are very precious to God. He loves us and counts each one of us very precious to him. And when he finds us, it brings him great joy. You are precious to God. And maybe today you came in the door and you weren't sure why you were here, but God led you here and you're here now. And God's trying to say to you, he's trying to say to you, you are very precious to me. You are very precious to me. In John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world. Love the world. I'm part of the world. Are you part of the world? Last time I looked, last time I felt myself, I'm part of the world. All right, I'm here. You see, and God loves us. What brings joy to God is the finding of a person who was once lost, but is, who is now found. Make no mistake about that, please, please. So you're thinking at this time, how am I going to make my wife happy? How am I going to make my parents happy? How am I going to make my siblings happy? How am I going to make da-da-da-da? Stop and think, how can I make God happy? How can I make him, how can I help him experience real joy? The joy comes from finding the loss. Well, if the first one didn't get the message through, let's go to the second one. The second one's called the parable of the lost coin. The lost coin. This is found in verses 5 to 10. And this, like the first part, there was the sheep, there was the shepherd. This time, there's the coin, and then there's the concerned one, the one who lost the coin. Now, the coin, starting with verse 8, 
the first half of it says, or what woman, if she has seen, has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. Now, what was a silver coin? The silver coin could possibly and probably represents the gift that is given to a new Jewish bride. A new Jewish bride is given a string, a, a headband or a necklace, if you will. And on it are coins, are coins. It's kind of like when my wife and I got married, our family was very generous, and so she got a couple of necklaces and a couple of bracelets, and they had coins on them. They were gold coins, gold U.S. coins. And they're worth a lot, all right? I wish I knew where these were. <laughs> we lost them somewhere. But <laughs> there was these coins, all right? And so here it was, this lady had this, this necklace, this wedding necklace, and she loses one of the coins. And of course, it's great value to her, probably sentimentally and otherwise. And she puts great effort into looking for the coin. Maybe this happened at night, so she lit a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully until she finds it. I was reminded of an example. One day, one of my daughters called us, and she said, Mom, Dad, she was crying on the phone. Why are you crying? What's so upset? And she said, I lost my wedding ring. And she had a wedding ring. I mean, that, that was a very nice wedding ring. But she said, I lost it. I cannot find it. And so she said, would you please pray that we'll find it? And, and she says, and if you have time, come over and help me look for it and everything. And she says, I've done everything. I've cleaned every closet. I've gone everywhere. I've tried to find this thing, and I'm practically on the hunt for it. She even offered her children a reward if they would find it. You know, she was that desperate to find this thing. Well, that's, how, that's what happened. And she put in a mighty effort to find that ring. She was very concerned, and she should be. Now, the concerned person, the other person of the parable, is this woman really, really went after it. In verse 9, when she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Now, don't skip over verse 10, because in verse 10, it says this, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Wow. Can you imagine? Did I tell you that my daughter found her ring? You know where she found it? It slipped off her finger while she was washing dishes and it was down the drain. A good thing she didn't turn on the garbage disposal and grind it up. But they found it in the trap under the sink. But she was so happy. She was so happy. It's just like this. Now multiply that relief. Multiply that joy. And you can imagine what God feels when he has found that which is lost. When he finds that which is lost. When he does find the lost and they repent, there is joy in the presence of God and his angels. What brings joy to God after a thorough search is finding a person who was once lost, but who is found. We must not forget that when God goes after somebody, when God really searches for somebody, he leaves no stone unturned. He leaves no cupboard uh, 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 locked. He goes in and he looks everywhere for us. There's no place that God is not willing to go to find you and to find me. That's the kind of God that we have, you see. 
He is thorough in his search. He considers us precious. Well, the last parable is probably the most famous of all. Many non-believers know this story. The, even the secular movies, they, they, they've latched onto this theme about the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? The word prodigal, what does that mean? The word prodigal means wasted, wasteful, the wasteful son, the wayward son. But I want to point out to you the lavishness of the father's love for his son. And this is found in verses 11 through 32. First of all, when we meet him, we meet him as the rebel. This is found in verses 11 through 16. And he said, a man has two sons. Okay? And he says, the younger son, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. What was he asking for? He was asking for his share of the inheritance. Usually a parent does not do this or give this, grants this, until he has either passed away or he has become incapable of managing his estate. That's when they decide to divide it up. So what he was asking for was basically, he was saying in a very mm, nice way, well, there's no nice way to say it. He was saying to his father, essentially, I wish you were dead. That's what he was saying. Translated, it would mean, I wish you were dead. Now give me my money. That's what basically he was saying to his father. And the father doesn't argue. The father gives it to him. He divides it. But then look what happens in verse, the second half of verse 12 and onwards. Verse 12 to 13. And it says, so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son uh, gathered everything uh, together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And so the son, the second part of the rebellion was that he said he wanted his, uh, his share. Then in the second part, he squandered his share with loose living. Well, where did, it, where did he end up? Look at verse 14 through 16. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, remember, this is a Jewish context, and this would be, this would be just aghast, you know, something for the people to hear and read. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of the swine that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him, it says in verse 16. He was completely destitute. He was desperate at this point. He said he was willing to eat what the pigs eat, if he could. You know the food that was fed to the, to the pods, that the word pods there reverts to a certain part of a tree that was fed to the pigs? Humans cannot digest it. Humans cannot digest it. So even the pigs were eating better than him. Even the pigs were eating better than he was. He could not even get a decent meal. He was de destitute and he was desperate. But look what happens next. After we met him as the rebel, he goes on and he becomes the repentant. He becomes the repentant. Look at verse 17 and see the evolution. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. 
I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one. Make me, make me as one of your hired men, he said in verse 19. He became repentant as he realized he had, re he had to return to his father and confess and, uh, and admit his guilt before God and his father in verse 18. He became repentant when he accepted that he was not worthy to any longer be called a son uh, and would be just happy with being accepted as a hired servant. And so what happens? You see this evolution happening. You see this happening to this man. And it's a sad thing to see. But what we understand from this, what we can learn from this, that anyone of us who needs to be found, there must be a big turnaround in our attitudes toward God. From rebelliousness to repentance, acknowledging we are sinners deserving of God's wrath. There was a big turnaround in the life of this young man. Pastor, how can you say that? How can you say that? Well, if you looked at the beginning of the parable in verse 11, he says, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. By the time you get to verse 19, he says, make me, please make me. That's a significant statement for this man. Before, he says, I know who I am. I know what I want. I know what I'm going to do. Give me the money. The last half, he says, I don't know what I'm doing. Please make me whatever you want. Please make me. That was the big turnaround. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, the apostles knew this, and in their preaching, early preaching to the crowds of people that came, their message was very consistent. And look at chapter 3 of Acts, verse 19. It says there, this is the conclusion of one of the sermons the apostles gave. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's one way of saying this. The young man had to learn to repent and to return. That was part of the re becoming a repentant uh, person. For the one who has Christ in his, as his personal Savior, there's a powerful message here. There's a powerful message. Now, many of you may say, I've heard this message before. I don't need to hear it again. And I heard it from people saying it better than you do. That's fine. I'm here. I'm saying it to you. And hopefully the Lord will use it for you. And what he says is that for those of us who do know Christ, it's time for us also to repent and return. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, this does not have to do with salvation. It has to do with fellowship, continuing our relationship with God. And it says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are we repentant? Are we repentant? Are we repentant? Or will we repent and return to God? God has that message for us who know him as their Savior. For the one who does not yet receive Christ as their Savior, the message is to acknowledge that you are a sinner, 
deserving of God's eternal wrath, but now accept his offer of forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life made possible because Christ died on the cross for our sins. Sometimes, you know, as sinners, we don't think we have a way out. I'm sure that it probably occurred to the mind of this young man at some point, maybe as he was sitting there watching the pigs eat and he was starving. Maybe because as he sat there and he looked at himself and he says, what have I done with my life? My life is a complete mess. Sometimes we don't think we have any way out of anything. God comes in, he says, I give you a way out. Return, repent and return. This is what he says. And why? Because of what Christ has done on the cross. If you look at Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Jesus is our way out. Both as believers and as non-believers. As followers of Christ and non-followers of Christ. We can still come back to God. Repent and return. Repent and return. Well, all of this sets us up for the last part of the parable, and that's the rejoicing, which happens in verses 20 through 32. And this is the restoration by the Father, okay? And look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. If you look at verse 20 there, it says that he sees his son a long way off, what does he do? So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him, he said. His father's attitude was one of compassion. He ran to his son. Okay? This is a Jewish society. Aged Jewish fathers do not run. <laughs> they do not run, okay? And this is significant that he ran to his son and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the attitude and actions of the son were one of confession and contrition. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now notice here, in verse 21, he only got the two parts of his three-part speech. All right? He only got two points in. He never got to the third point about hiring him as a servant. Because his father wouldn't let him. His father wouldn't let him. And I thought it was significant. If this was an Asian father, and Jews are Asian, right? Okay? But if he was a, hmm, oriental father. No, I can't say that, because oriental means rugs. It means... Uh, if I was a Chinese father, all right, and I saw my wayward son coming down the middle aisle there, you know, I saw him a way off, what would I say to him? You know, I'd kill you, you know? Look at what all you put me through, you know? And I've seen that many times in Chinese grocery stores. You know, I'm going to kill my son. I'm going to do this. I'm going to... Get after him. Don't ever do that again. Don't ever run away from me again. You know, on and on and on and on. That's a typical and expected answer, right? That's how we act. But this father acted completely different when he saw his son come. He had nothing but compassion. 
and love for his son. That's like God. And then the father restores the wayward son. Look at verse 22 through 24. I'm sure the son was just shocked out of his mind as his father embraced him. And he was saying maybe something like, where's my real father? (laughs) Where's my real father here? Give me back my real father. And then in verse 22, but the father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. He says in verse 23, and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He has lost and has been found. And he began to celebrate. He restores his son. The father gives him the robe and the ring and the sandals. What are those? Well, the robe and the ring, actually the robe would be a sign of honor. The ring would be a sign of authority. The sandals means I've gone one step further and I've made sure the picture is complete. You are now restored to me. And then the father celebrates by bringing in the fatted calf. But you look at verse 24, it says, why would he do all this? Look at verse 24. The son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Like the two previous parables, the finding of what was once lost brings deep joy and celebration to the Father, who is God, represents God in this particular parable. But not everybody was happy about this. Not everybody was happy. Remember I told you that parables have to be interpreted in light of their context? It was answering a question. There was still this group of Pharisees and scribes out there who really believed in works. Works was the way to go. Works was the way to, to really make uh, God happy and, make, uh, and, and win uh, special privileges from Him. And so in verses 25 through 32, we find the father reaches out to the older son. The older son's attitudes and actions towards his brother was the same that the Pharisees and the scribes had towards sinners and outcasts. Verse 25 through 20, uh, 31, it says, Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things would, could be. And he, meaning the servant, said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. What's the son say? But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But but he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said, this is the father to the son, older son, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. Well, what did he mean by all that? Well, what did he mean by that? Basically, was the son said, look, I've, I've, I've done everything that was asked of me. I've done everything. I've kept all your commandments. I've, I've obeyed you to the nth degree. And I've loyally stayed with you. I put in all the good works. 
But not once have you ever even honored me with an with a animal that I could celebrate with my friends with. That may be true. But then look at what the father says. The father says, yes, you've done all that. And everything I have is yours. And essentially, he is saying to that son, you have your reward. Don't worry. Calm down. Everything you're working for and hope for on this earth is going to be yours. That's fine. But then the father goes one step further. Because the father's has, is representing the attitudes and actions of God. Where do we see this? He says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. In verse 32, the father is saying, this was the right thing to do, to celebrate when a person who has been lost has been found. This is the right thing. This is how, what God values that we do that. This is what is in the heart of mind of God when he receives the sinner who repents. This is probably brought out even more starkly. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, the law of the Jewish people the younger son, his behavior, he should have been stoned and not showered with such compassion and forgiveness. That was the rule of God. But this is how God feels towards us, and he acts. He acts out of grace and mercy towards us. For those who are waiting and thinking out there that, you know... All I have to do is do enough good works to outweigh my bad works and I'm going to be in heaven. I'll be okay after this life is all over. Please understand that God is a God of grace and mercy. Works have their role, but it's not to win us our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, it says. If that wasn't clear enough, please go to Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. And it says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, he says. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So perhaps there are some people out here who are saying to themselves, ah, sounds all good, but you know, I'm going to do it my way. And I figure if I just do enough good works, I'm in. I'm safe. I don't have to worry about it. Right here, he says, he saved us, not on the basis of any deeds that we have done. So, we, we do good works because we are saved. We don't do good works in order to be saved. Okay? That's the summary of that. So, the parable ends here. Now, here's the sad part. Nowhere in the, here, in this passage, or in the Bible, does it ever say, 
that the older son goes in and joins the celebration. It leaves it out. And in some ways, many people who hear the parable of the prodigal son, they're undecided. They're thinking it over. They don't know what they're going to do. But the point is that God wants you to join the celebration. God wants you to be the one who is celebrated. Dead, but now alive. Lost, but now found. That's what brings joy to God. Brings joy to God. Now, what's the point of all this? Well, the parables show, help us to know ourselves and God. So three things here, quickly. First one, find yourself in the parable. Have you already repented and returned to God? Okay, that's a quick, that's a quick analysis. Are you one who needs to repent and return to God? The Lord is seeking. The Lord is seeking us. Has he found you? And will you allow him to restore you to himself? That's a big, big question. And I hope that you have found yourself in the parable and you are ready to be found. Number two, know God from the parables. We can now know God by observing how he responds to people, sinners, outcasts, and the wayward. Know how much he loves you and desires to receive you unto himself with grace and mercy. I'm sorry to say that sometimes over the years when I've tried to present God to people, some people that I've talked to, they said, I can't go to God. I've been so bad. I've done so many terrible things, blah, 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 on and on and on and on. They are afraid of facing a wrathful God. I can't go. I can't go. Don't ask me to do this, Pastor. I can't do it. I can't look him in the face. Just like that Chinese father <laughs> looking at his wayward son. And I'm here to tell you that based on God's word, that's the farthest thing from the truth. Now, God will be wrathful to those who do reject him. Don't get me wrong. The wrath of God is very real. However, if you want to come to God, he is ready to welcome you like the father. And so the choice is yours. Lastly, help others who are lost to be found. As we get to know God better, we respond to them as God responds to them. How do we know that? Well, Gary Enrig had this wonderful quote. The evidence that we know God is not so much our ability to define the divine attributes as it is our response to people. Right knowledge of God is present when we imitate our Father's response. We must respond to people the way that God responds to them. That's how we really know God. God sees each person as precious, just like the shepherd found the sheep. God sees each one of us, seeks each one of us out thoroughly, just like the woman who was looking for the lost coin. God receives and restores each one personally to himself. So see, seek, and bring people to Christ. Now, why would God take us to the parables at Christmas time? Shouldn't I be talking about the three kings or, you know, the, the, the sheep, the shepherds, you know, and Mary and the baby and all that kind of stuff? I think God was trying to tell us 
It's time for God's people to find a way to bring joy to God. And that way to bring joy to God is helping to bring people who are lost to be found. So, with that in mind, let me encourage you to invite them to the Christmas service. Invite them to your home to watch you celebrate Christmas. Share with them personally what God has done in your life. Share with them the almighty God who has been in your, active in your life. And the third thing, point them to Christ and to the cross. Remember we read Romans chapter 5? We read Romans chapter 5 earlier. I purposely left out verse 10. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So point people, point people to Christ and the cross. You're smart people. You know this better than I do. You can do this. You can do this. Whether you're joining the block visitation later, whether you're inviting people to your home, whether you're driving people to the Christmas service, whatever it is, do it. Why? Because this is the way that we will bring joy to the heart and mind of God. This is what we can do. Christmas is a season of joy, not just for us and loved ones, but also for God. How can we bring joy to God the Father this Christmas? The answer is by re us repenting and returning to Him as needed and helping others to do the same. Let's pray. Father, as we come together, may the, Your Word not fall upon hardened hearts or even hardened ears today. But may it find fertile soil and ground in which to plant itself and grow. I pray, Father, for GBC. I pray, Father, that we will not face this Christmas as just another Christmas. But, Father, we will be motivated and we will be pressed to bring joy to you. And the way that we can bring joy to you is helping bring the loss that they can be found. They can be restored. They can, be, they can repent and they can return and they can be restored to you. Oh, Father, help us all today to make this the most special Christmas ever, the most special and blessed Christmas of all, as members of our family, as members, as friends, co-workers, acquaintances, and even strangers will be found and be restored. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.